Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hello and welcome. This is On Mike with Jordan Rich, where conversation is celebrated. Conversation with creative people who have a lot to say and a lot to give. And for the first time in a couple of years, we staged two podcast tapings in front of a live audience at one of Boston's most beautiful and prestigious downtown residences, the magnificent Millennium Tower. The guest we're about to feature on today's episode is Lisa Lutan, author of the book Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed, winner of a gold medal in the Motivation Practical Self-Improvement category of the Annual Living Now Awards, recognizing the best books for better living. Now, Lisa turned her own stress-filled life around and over the next several years has built a thriving coaching practice, helping everyone from stressed-out stay-at-home moms to high-powered CEOs. So let's go, quote-unquote, live and talk to Lisa Lutan on mic. By the sound of it, it seems as though we're in front of actual human beings for the first time in a long time. It is so exciting to be back at the Millennium Tower here in Boston, a beautiful, beautiful building with a great community. And uh, this, of course, is On Mike with Jordan Rich, a live-to-tape podcasting event, just like they used to do in the old days of radio, when radio was king. Now it's just a prince. We're actually doing two shows today, and our first show is with a terrific lady who's become a friend, as well as a neighbor. More on that later. With us is Lisa Lutan, L-E-W-T-A-N, author of Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed. Calm down, ditch your inner... Can we say it? Yeah, you can say it. I'd like to hear you say it. Calm your inner... Ditch your inner critic, bitch. (laughs) The audience went completely silent when you did that. One more time. Well, actually, in the book, it's calm down... Okay. Ditch your inner critic bitch and finally figure out what you personally, your body needs to thrive. Okay, so we had the four-letter or five-letter or six-letter word. We got that out of the way. It's part of the title. It's perfectly legal. Lisa, so nice to see you, and thanks for doing this tonight. It is so nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Indeed. Now, the first question out of the box is, what is a healthy living strategy person all about? And that's what you bill yourself as. Actually, I bill myself now as a life coach, but when the book came out, I was a healthy living strategist. And it really combines all over healthy living. I think that so much has evolved in the last years about what it takes to be a healthy person. It's so much more than just food and exercise. And oftentimes, we know what we need to do, but we don't know how to do it. And so we need a strategy. And we need somebody to come along and help us build a strategy to make this stuff happen. People listening have financial strategies. They have strategies to, uh, to deal with their business life and their work life. But this is life strategy. Work life and business life might even benefit from it. And your work life and business life are usually often a big part of it as well, because we can't just look at one piece of your life. We have to look at your relationships. We have to look at your passions, your life purpose. We have to look at the whole picture 
to see what's really going on and see what areas are not getting the attention they need and need a little boosting. Now, you are very honest in the opening pages of the book and in our discussions prior to doing this about where you were and now you're in a good place, but where you were, and I think a lot of us will identify with where you were. Can you share some of that with us? Yeah, I mean, my story goes way, way back, but I'll, I'll give you the highlight. I started a tech company when I was 23 with my then boyfriend at the time, who is my husband now. And those were the days that way before it was cool to be a tech entrepreneur in your 20s. We were a bootstrap company and we were working round the clock. I was working six days a week, 14 hour days. Stuart, my husband, was working seven days a week. And we were just doing everything we could to keep that business going. Um, as you probably know, when you're working like that, a lot of things slide, like your well-being, your self-care, um, just about really any, everything else in your life. And so I kept going at this pace for many years. And after having a child and then a second child and moving, I ended up being rushed to the hospital thinking that I was having a stroke. Wow. Um, and that began a really bad chapter in my life. I thankfully did not have a stroke, but I went into a really deep, dark place when doctors couldn't tell me what was wrong with me. I was having physical symptoms. I was having mental symptoms. I was, having, I was just a real mess. Now they know there's a term called burnout. But mm. back then, nobody had ever used that word or had heard that word before. And so doctors were just throwing prescriptions at me, and I wasn't taking them because nobody could tell me what was wrong with me. You, you talk about a syndrome that has been blowing up since the pandemic. Loneliness, isolation, lack of ability to get somewhere, to do something to be with people. But this happened years back, as you say, before they, they, whoever they are, had the terms of art to describe it. So how long did you fu uh, suffer with this life story? I had about two years of really terrible suffering. And I got to a point where I was just sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. And I said, I'm an entrepreneur. I find creative solutions to problems. I'm going to have to solve this problem on my own. And because nobody knew anything back then about the impact of, say, sugar or gut health or sleep or meditation, these just weren't things that were being talked about in mainstream, at least, back then. And so I just started experimenting. I started my own version of biohacking, for lack of a better word. And I started experimenting with food and with sleep and with caffeine and with stress and with my thoughts. And little by little, I started getting better. And I started reading everything I could find because there was no internet back then. And I started connecting dots about things that had happened in my past, things that were going on now. And when I started slowly getting better, I started believing that I could be better. And once I got better, I got better and better and better. And that ultimately led me to a huge career shift that happened uh, years later than that. You mentioned doing it little by little, and in this culture, uh, the standard is, let me take a pill and get over this thing and move on. It doesn't happen when you burn the body out, and I've been there, when you burn your body out uh, because of sleep deprivation and poor diet, lack of exercise, and this goes on for months and years, it takes a while to kickstart everything back into shape. 
Not only does it take a while, I think there are primary things that are going on in your body, and then there are secondary things that are a reaction to the primary things. And I think when our body goes through this experience, it's very frightening. And our bodies want to go into fight or flight. Our bodies start trying to protect us, and it backfires, and we end up with additional symptoms. Maybe there's headaches, maybe there's more anxiety. And so to start figuring out what's really going on, it's like peeling the onion away, the layers to get to what the original thing was and how to get better. Is there one outstanding or important issue over another that you start with? I mean, was it for you diet or was it sleep? I mean, what was it that you began to change first? For me, it started with food. Um, I also think meditation was a game changer of life. Not only the practice of meditation, but the understanding behind meditation about understanding my thoughts, understanding my programming that I had been brought up with, understanding all my limited belief systems. And when I could start realizing what all these things that were trying to protect me were not serving me any longer, I was able to start really getting honest with myself and really listening to my body in a whole new way. That's a very important aspect to all this. I was reading in the book about how you, you, know, you understand triggers and then learned how to deal with them. What does it mean to listen to your body? What did that mean in your life to start listening and hearing? That's such a great question because I still feel like when I work with clients, and I, I mention that, they, I don't think they really get that. So our bodies are talking to us all the time, but we're really not listening because we're taught to listen to our minds. And there's so much going on. There's so much information every day. You know, What's going on? Is my, my chest feeling tight? Is my stomach yeah. rumbling? Is my energy low? Is what is really going on in my body, not in my mind? Because the mind can lie, the body doesn't <laughs> lie. I love that book, The Body Keeps the Score, in fact. Mm -hmm. uh, there is so much going on in the body. So even just sitting and tuning into the body on a daily basis and saying like, body, what do you need from me right now? What's going on right now? You will be privy to so much valuable information. There's. Um a lot to say about the mind and body connection in your world, in your life, and in the work you do with clients. So I want to explore that a little bit. But you did mention sugar, so why don't we start with that? Sugar's uh, a biggie. There's a documentary, I don't know if many of the folks have seen it, but it blows my mind to think about the impact of sugar in so many ways, because we're so overrun with it. There's, it's everywhere, it's in everything. So how do you, and it's also quite addictive, as they say as addictive as cocaine to some. How do we start to change that, uh, that sugar high and move away from it and find alternatives? How did you do it? There's two ways to do it. I used to run a program for years called Ditch Your Sugar Itch. And so, and I used to help people get off sugar. Everything rhymes it. with that Everything bad rhymes. word. <laughs> um, Not which, but the other word. The other word, anyway, yeah. There's a lot of ditching going on. But <laughs> there's two ways to get off sugar. One is cold turkey. You just literally stop eating sugar. You stop eating artificial sweeteners. You stop eating honey. You stop eating maple syrup. You stop eating really anything that tastes sweet and that's going to trigger sweet um, cravings. That's one way to do it. Or there's a slow way to do it as well that some people prefer, and that is limit your variety. So, for example... 
if you went to a dessert buffet, you're going to have a bite of this and a bite of that and a bite of that and a bite of that, right? Before you know it, you've eaten a large amount of anything. But if you just said, I'm just going to eat chocolate chip cookies and no other sweets, it, it lowers the pool by 99%. So there's slower ways to do it. I like the cold turkey approach myself, but I think everybody knows themselves a little bit differently, and there are definitely ways to do it. Well, you, your book is called Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed. We are obsessed with food, uh, particularly where we're broadcasting this podcast from in Boston. We're a foodie town. The, the food is amazing. The cuisine's amazing. But I'm not talking about that kind of thing. I'm talking about people who just can't stop feeding their faces all day long almost habitually without even thinking about what they're putting in their bodies. It's an important part of what you're talking about is getting an understanding in your head and in your mind as to what food it really is, what it's designed to do, and how it can work for you. And it doesn't mean it's just utile. There are great things about food that are healthy foods that are tasty. But talk a little bit about that obsession we have with food and, the, of course, the psychological issues involved. So I hate to disappoint, but... Food Obsessed, in this book, talks about food obsession in a different kind of way. There are a lot of people who are stuffing their faces with food and not thinking, but there's a lot of people that are thinking about food all the time, might not be eating it, you'd never look at them and go, oh, that person has a food obsession, but we're thinking about food a lot. We're reading about food. We're planning dinner right the minute we leave for lunch. We're obsessing about what we're eating, and I think this is a really huge part of the population that doesn't get discussed because there might not be a weight problem involved. And the thing that I really delve into in the book is that when we are not wanting to be where we are, when we want to distract, when we want to leave what we're doing, some people go to wine, some people go to drugs, some people go to food. And again, it doesn't necessarily mean eating food, but it's thinking about food all the time. And so when that happens, it's not necessarily about food. It's about this is where I go when I want to escape. This is where I go when I want to think about something that's pleasure. I'm in the North End right now. Right. but I I'm enjoying a, a chicken parmesan right now. No, I'm kidding. No, but food is a huge source of pleasure. And when we're so busy and running around and stressed all the time, we just want to think about something that brings us pleasure. And for many people, that is food. I also have the notion that because people are eating on the fly, on the run, what used to be a, a chance to be communal and get together and, and share stories and have a what they called a repast, I love that word. We don't eat like that. We eat on the run, we eat separately. Kids are eating at six, you're eating at seven, your husband's eating at eight. Actually, he already ate. I'm looking at him right there. He's Now he's drinking. Okay. The idea of sitting down and even taking time to enjoy your food. In this fast-paced culture, it's, it's very difficult to, to get a hold of that. It's very difficult, and it's also, we're not being mindful when we eat. We're, we're looking at the plate and go, where did it disappear to? So there's very low levels of satiety going mm -hmm. on. Um, it gets into a lot of areas for people who have issues with you know, not being present. And to your point, food is joyful when we eat with other people. Breaking bread together can be a beautiful thing. 
And so many people are just eating in the car, eating on the fly, or they're eating food that is not even real food. It's like, I'll grab a bar, I'll grab a this, you know, I'll grab some fake food. And that's not very satisfying and it's not very healthy for us either. Right. Lisa, how do you uh, help people who are food obsessed in a different way? Their food guilt ratio is very, very high. In other words, if they have, see someone eating a steak and they really want to have a steak once a month, but they, they're so ridden with guilt and fear that they force themselves away from the table and run screaming out of the restaurant. That's not anybody I know, believe me. Well, no, seriously, what do, you, what do you say to people who are so adamant about eating everything that they're supposed to, quote-unquote, that they don't have any joy in life? I say there is no room for shame or guilt or beating yourself up when it comes to food. It's all about getting curious. Mm-hmm. Everything is about curiosity. Well, why? Isn't that interesting that I ate a whole box of Oreos? Isn't that interesting <laughs> that when I went there, I ate this entire meal. When we get rid of all the crap around it and we get into what's really going on, I'll say, well, why did you? And sometimes it's because we're angry or sometimes we're happy or sometimes we're bored. And so when we start understanding ourselves as a human and as an eater and we just get curious about everything, then we go, oh, that's why I did that. I'm not a bad person because I overate. You talk about awareness. I was eight years old, and I realized I really love ice cream, and then I love potato chips, and then I love ice cream again. That savory, sweet combination. And, of course, I was eight years old. I knew nothing. I I didn't know anything until I was about 58. If you just think about what you're doing consciously in the moment, you might get some answers, and you might realize, what am I doing? (laughs) Well, in the book, I go quite a bit into emotional triggers versus chemical triggers. And an emotional trigger might be just what you're saying, like, well, I'm not really thinking about it, or I'm sad, and I want to feel better eating ice cream. But the chemical triggers are real. And when you eat that first chip, depends on your chemical makeup, many of us can't stop at one chip. We're going to keep going for a long time till the bag's gone or till we're sick. And it's the same thing with the ice cream. If you're a sugar-sensitive person, you can't just have one bite and walk away. I, I don't know too many people that can do that. So again, it's knowing who you are, knowing how your body works. I know I'm very sugar-sensitive. If I'm going to eat something, I'm going to downward spiral fast. And I wrote a blog once called uh, One Girl's Cupcake is Another Girl's Crack Cocaine. (laughs) And for me, it was crack cocaine. And I know that, and I still have it sometimes, but I know and I take responsibility for how I'm going to feel afterwards. You talk about chemicals. Everything in our bodies is chemically connected to everything else. And I'm drinking tea, traditional English breakfast. You're drinking chamomile. Is that a choice to stay away from caffeine? You don't drink any caffeine products? I do drink a little caffeine in the morning, but I will say I was 27 years caffeine free. And during that time, I researched caffeine continually and everything I found proved that caffeine was actually quite good for you, you know, in terms of prevention of dementia and diabetes. And I went back to drinking caffeine after many years. Now, I just drink caffeine in the morning a little bit because it does impact sleep, and mm-hmm. to me, sleep is the holy grail of health now. Like, if I don't get sleep, I'm not a happy person. So I think that the studies are saying more than that is fine. And it's really, again, how does it make you feel, and is it impacting your sleep at all? Indeed. Sleep is uh, a, a, a commodity that I didn't really take much stock in as a 
longtime radio announcer getting up at 3.30 in the morning, or worse, as a longtime radio announcer working from midnight to 5 in the morning. <laughs> and uh, I always thought, well, I could go to the sleep bank. You know what the sleep bank is. I'll make it up on the weekend. doesn't work that way. People are always looking for the better night's sleep, but they're using medicinals to try to do that sometimes, and I, I think that's the wrong way to go personally. But what's the secret to getting better sleep in general? Well, one thing I find with many of my clients, I hear this so much, like, oh, I can fall asleep and then I'm up at three or four in the morning. And one of the things that I discovered, which was really surprising to me, was that technology usage before bed didn't always impact the falling asleep, but it does impact quite a bit the waking up in the middle of the night and not being able to go back to sleep. And it didn't make sense to me because I thought, oh, we hear our brain is stimulated and it would have made more sense that you couldn't fall asleep. But I've seen it so many times now with clients that I have to believe there is another correlation. And when we work with stopping the technology a couple hours before bedtime, sleep gets improved dramatically. Mm. I'm not surprised that screen, whatever it is, uh, a pad or a phone, has a, a not a quality anyway, and it's very difficult to close your eyes and tear yourself away. You, you see children, uh, students in high school, who are up all night long, and they're droopy-eyed when they get to school, if they get to school. Another issue, of course, is exercise, and we're broadcasting. I could say broadcasting. It's a podcast, but I'm broadcasting it, okay? We are podcasting from uh, one of Boston's finest most beautiful condo and apartment complex is the Millennium, and it has, I'm told, I believe this to be the case, and somebody can correct me, the largest home gym setup uh, in the city. Does somebody have to work out in the gym for an hour every day to be quote-unquote fit, or are there other ways to get it done? Well, I like to focus on movement, and I think that we're animals, and animals in nature need to move. You don't see lions not moving. You don't see any other animals in nature not moving. And so as long as we're moving our bodies, and I like to say in as many different directions as possible. So if you're just running, ellipticaling, biking, you're always going like this, you're not moving like this. And that's why bring in some dance, bring in some stretch and move your body in many different ways. It feels good. The more you do different things, you're less likely to get bored. You're less likely to get injured. So just mix it up and have fun with it. Have fun with it. I love that idea. I mean, I walk a lot, and I'm never sitting at a desk ever. I'm up on my feet all day long, and my wife gives me grief. You should go to the gym more often. I said, I'm, I'm too busy running around. And I feel great. And look at me. I look like a, a, a half a million bucks. I used you to be like a million. You look like a million bucks. And you know, <laughs> I really do believe, I mean, obviously, we want to keep our body strong, especially as we're aging. That muscle is super important so that we're standing up straight and we're not going to fall down or be hunched over when we're older. But I think that just like with the food, just like with the exercise, you can't beat yourself up to change. We have to tap into, how am I gonna make myself feel good? And when I feel good doing something, I'm more likely to keep doing it. Let's talk about that, because I think that's the, the best part of what you have to say in the book and in life and in the work you do. You get into this groove, and it's a better groove than McDonald's drive-through. 
it's a groove that you actually look forward to getting into. And I've had that experience myself. I started to eat healthier. I gave up, well, we call it tonic around here, soda pop, okay? When I was about 20 years old, I never looked back. I don't drink any alcohol either. But um, I really felt that I wanted to get off that stuff, that sugary stuff, and I stayed off. I can't even imagine going back to it. So it's getting into the habit of doing better things. That seems to work for me. Does it work for anybody? I think it really works for most people to a point. Everybody's a little bit different, but when people do tap into, oh, I feel good, and they connect the dots and make those connections, they're more likely to stick with the behavior than forcing themselves. That's why the diets don't work. It's all about deprivation, and that never works long term. But when you can feel like, I feel good, I want to keep doing this, that's easy. That's not hard. And change and feeling good doesn't have to be hard. And that's an important message that I want to get to everybody. It should feel good. Remember that old joke about exercise. Every time I get the urge to exercise, I lie down, take a nap, it goes away. <laughs> but that's an old joke. Yeah. Let's though talk about the, uh, the, the mindfulness aspect. The fact that in hypnosis, uh, they say it takes 21 days, 21 days of repetition for behavior to take shape. And I think what we're talking about here is the ability to face what you are facing, make a decision you want to feel better and look better and be sexier, I'll throw that in there, and then do it for 21 days or how many days it takes, and it starts to become a habit. I think those things have been debunked recently. Oh, darn you know? it. <laughs> I thought uh, I was coming read, up with if my... If you've read the books, <laughs> Tiny Habits or Atomic Habits, you can change a habit instantly. It's just having the right reminder system and the right reward system. And if you have the right reminder, the right reward, if you haven't read those books, I highly recommend either one will give you a good framework for changing habits. But you can change habits super fast and get the benefits really quickly. There's somebody here in the audience who is destined to be a guest on my program. His name, first name is John. I won't mention his last name. But John is, leads meditation classes and meditation workshops and seminars. Well, actually, he leads meditation here in the, in the building we're broadcasting from. I'll... I'll conclude with this question in general terms. Meditation for many people is very difficult and people say I can't stop and think about nothing. John is very good and that's why I want to have him on. It's more than that and it doesn't have to be that. You can meditate doing a podcast, you can meditate writing or painting or gardening, but talk a little bit about how meditation factors into the work you do as a, uh, as a life coach? Well, I tend to work with very um, busy, stressed, successful people who um, don't typically meditate. They don't typically make time for tranquility in their life. And the thought of meditation is very scary. I am also a trained meditation teacher. So I like to start them really, really slowly with even a minute. And sometimes we just start with three breaths three deep breaths three times a day. And the one thing I like to point out is the thing that yoga and meditation have in common is the breath. So if we can just start learning how to take some deep breaths, just sitting still, usually people can take that and then we go a little bit longer, a little bit longer. And the thing that really tripped me up years ago when I was learning meditation was, I can't clear my head, I can't clear my head, I have that monkey brain, you know? <laughs> but you're not not thinking. You can't stop your brain from thinking 
any more than you can stop your heart from beating. You're just thinking about something else. And maybe it's thinking about the breath, or maybe it's going into your body and thinking about what sensations are going on in the body. And maybe you'll have moments mm -hmm. of where everything stops, but it's so much pressure to feel like you have to sit there for half an hour and have no thoughts. I think that really scares people away. I would employ you as my teacher, or John, I, I use guided meditations because I, I just can't do it on my own. I probably could if I put my mind to it. So I did <laughs> it is one of those things that frustrates people and it's too bad and that's why we need more people like you and John to help us, to guide us, to, to let us know that it isn't some woo-woo mystical kind of thing that uh, only great men in mountains can do. And it's not about perfection. It's just like everything else. Be kind to yourself. Do the best you can. Give it a try. Some days are going to be better than others, and that's okay. So, Lisa, I've got to ask you before we close out, you're terrific. How has this impacted your family? How has it impacted your husband? He's here. You're a role model for the people you help to advise and teach and lead. Has it rubbed off on family and friends? I think it has. Um, I, I try really hard not to preach to people who don't want to hear it and not to be in not to be annoying about it, but I hear my kids saying things to me like, oh my God, I'm feeling so crappy, I just have to clean up my diet, or I, I've got to get back on track and start running again. And they don't realize it, but I go, success, you know? Um, or they, they know so much more than I think their peers do at, at a younger age they did. And I think that definitely my husband has reaped the rewards of this work because he's got to listen to me talk about it all the time. <laughs> and when you walked in here, I saw you from across the room. You and I have only really met and talked once, right? And I saw you come in and I didn't recognize you at first because it was a long distance. But the thing that really struck me was how radiant you look. I mean, your smile, I mean, you just light up a room. And that's not to say that people who uh, don't follow a regimen like yours, uh, healthy living like yours, can't do that. Santa Claus does, right? <laughs> There's something about feeling better, and that feeling extends to, to how you... Certain people give off an aura that is light and bright. I'm getting really mystical now. I'm getting really weird. I love it. Did you hear that? She loved it. Lisa Lutan is delightful in every way, and you feel good just being with her. Visit lisalutan, L-E-W-T-A-N dot com for much more. Thanks as always to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, to Ken Carberry and everyone at Chart Productions, and a very special thank you to the wonderful staff at the Millennium Tower in Boston. Till next time, this is Jordan saying as always, be well so you can do good. Take care. Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, oh.